But I want you to remain standing as we bring our series, Broken Down Wall, we bring it to a conclusion. Looking at the very end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul finally gets to his prayer. Listen now to God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with, the, with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's stop there. Go ahead and have a seat. We are finally bringing this series, this chapter to a conclusion. We're finally getting to where Paul actually prays. If you've been with us these last few weeks, we've talked about the first uh, 13 verses of Ephesians 3. is like a really long runway for Paul to take off to actually get to his prayer. And now that we finally get to the prayer, we hear these words once again in verse 14 where Paul says, For this reason... Now, if you remember all the way back at verse 1, this is how Paul started the chapter. He says, for this reason. Now, we're going to talk about what that reason is, but, but I want to set it up for you really by getting you to think about what Paul, how Paul is responding here. I mean, if you, if you think about different situations in life, when something happens, there are some typical responses that all of us share in. I, I just finished doing a wedding this afternoon. It was a wonderful wedding. A young couple, uh, just seeing them make their vows to each other. It's a, a joy to do a wedding. But there is, there, is a, there is something that happens at every single wedding that I've ever done. It's like this knee-jerk reaction, automatic response. And here's what it looks like. The moment the bride appears... All of the other wedding bridal party has come through, and there's that moment when in the back of the room, or in the back of, this was a little chapel, the back of the chapel, the bride appears, and everyone stands. Everyone stands. In fact, I did a, a wedding this summer, and uh, one of the people being married was Korean. And I didn't know this about the Korean culture. It was awesome. Uh, every time one of the bridesmaids walked, every person clapped for them. It was like I'd never seen it before. Like, everyone clapped. And then when the bride appeared, it was like, it was like being at the Seahawks game, right, Eric? <laughs> like, it was like just, just so much celebration. Now, the same thing happens in, in sports, you think about when your favorite team wins a big game, you have an automatic knee-jerk reaction. What is it? I mean, you're, just, you're jumping off the couch. You're, you're celebrating. You're like, yes! Or when your, your favorite team loses a big game. We don't know what that's like around here, by the way. You're heartbroken. You, you, sink, into the, you sink into your seat. You, you kind of slide down just like, oh. See, there are certain things in life where we have an automatic reaction, and I think that's what's happening in this moment. 
I think the Apostle Paul, when we finally get to verse 14, the Apostle Paul, he says, for this reason, he says, I bow my knee. He says there is an automatic response in his life, in his soul. It's, it's, it's generated from the inside and it results in an external expression. He says, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And see, this is simply our big idea today. As we look at this text, and we're going to look through every verse, and we're going to just dig into the entire thing, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that bowing before the Father follows beholding God's work. Just like everyone rising when the bride shows up at the end of the room, just like when your team wins a great game and everyone just jumps out of their seat, when you and I when we behold the work of God, when we properly understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, there is, a, there is an automatic response that is meant to be just, you, you can't hold it back. And you know what that response is? That response, it's prayer. It's bowing our knee before the Father. And so let's, let's pick up in this text. Paul says, for this reason, I, I want to remember with you what this reason is. You know, we've seen specifically chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. This is the reason that Paul is talking about. This is our entire series. This series, we called it Broken Down Wall because for the first few weeks of the series, we talked about how through the cross of Jesus Christ, there has been a major wall broken down. We've actually described it in two ways. The first wall that was broken down is the wall of access to God. We said that there used to be this giant wall, and that wall was made from our sin, and you and I, we had no access to God because of our rebellion, because of our selfishness, because of our sin, and because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, that wall has been decimated. It's rubble. It's been destroyed. Then we also talked about it in another way. We said the other wall that was broken down is the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. We talked about the hostility between Jew and Gentile was was just complete animosity. It was hatred. The Jews hated the Gentiles, everyone that was not a Jew, and the Gentiles hated the Jews. And this this hostility, it, it just meant that there was no peace between them. But in the church, because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, that wall has broken down. And so now it doesn't matter what, what differences exist between us. In Christ... Jew and Gentile are now one. In the church, everyone can be reconciled. Your brother or sister has wounded you. They have sinned against you. Guess what? In Christ, we can have unity. We can have harmony. We can have reconciliation. We don't need to hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. This is what leads Paul to say twice, Ephesians 3, verse 1, and then in verse 14, for this reason. He says it in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then he kind of goes on a tangent. And he basically is so excited about praying that he doesn't quite pray. (laughs) And he takes him 13 verses, and in those 13 verses, he describes this mystery. Remember the mystery? The church is, it was hidden. It was a secret of God that was revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talks about the ministry. He talks about how he, and by extension, all of us have been given ministry in the church. We have a purpose. He talks about the gospel going forward to everyone so that everyone can hear about this amazing love of Jesus Christ. These are all of these things when he says, for this reason, 
This is what he has in mind. And this ultimately leads him to prayer. Now, there are prayers, actually Susan and I were talking about this, there are prayers for just about everything in the scripture. We can talk about all sorts of different ways of praying. And what you're going to see in these verses, this is not the only way to pray. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see some key aspects of prayer tonight. And my hope, this will not only change the way you pray, but I hope that as you pray this prayer for yourself and for others, this changes everything about your life. And so let's begin to pick, pick this passage, pick through this passage. Let's begin to walk through this. If you haven't opened your Bible yet, would you open up to Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14? And, and, and the text, the way it flows, there, there are three aspects of prayer. We're just going to walk through. He, here's the first one. The first one, you see that you can reverently approach the Father in prayer. Now, uh, this word reverent, this is the idea of approaching God with awe or with a humility. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says this. It says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, Paul here, he is praying, but this is not a casual prayer. This is not a, you know, hey God, uh, no. There is a reverence. There is a humility. In fact, if you, if you look at the text, you see that, that we pray in humility. This phrase, I, I bow my knees. Paul here is, he has a physical posture that accompanies his spiritual attitude. You know, can you pray when you're walking? Yeah. Can you pray with your eyes open? Absolutely. Can you pray with a group of people? Yes. Can you pray out loud? Yes. Can you pray silently? Yes. Can you pray alone? Yes. All of that is true, but there are moments when our physical posture, when we're so overwhelmed by the truth of what God has done in Christ, our physical posture should match our internal attitude. This is, this is praying in humility. He, he bows his knees before the Father. He, he, he gets down on the ground recognizing that God is God and he is man. Recognizing that God has saved him and God didn't have to do that at all. See, we, we pray in humility. This text gives us a few hints of why. First of all, we humbly pray and bow before the fatherly authority. This text talks about bowing before the Father. I mean, in the very nature, what we're doing in that moment is we're recognizing that God is God. <laughs> He's our authority. Now, this is, this is one of our culture's least favorite words, right? Authority. But God's the fatherly authority. The reality is God designed households to work with a fatherly authority. He calls men to be the, the leaders in the house, not in a domineering way, not in a bullyish way, not in a way that they lead for their own selfish gain, but rather he calls men to lead what we see later in Ephesians by laying down their life, actually. But they have a real authority. And their authority is it's mirroring, it's matching, it's, it's following this pattern of the Heavenly Father being our authority. You know, this word authority, it reminds me of how often we, we want to say, I'm the authority. How often we say, well, I know what God says here. 
I know what it says in the scripture, but here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to live. I understand what God has told me and what he's instructed me with, but, but you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather go do this. It's like being a father with kids in the house. And you tell your kid, hey, it's time to go do this. And, and sometimes they don't quite listen right away because they're not responding to the authority. I just think in a very simple way, Paul, when he bows his knees, he, he is... He's giving a physical posture that says, God, you're my God. You're in charge, not me. But, but secondly, he humbly bows before the fatherly authority. But secondly, we humbly bow before the fatherly author. There, there, there's this humility before God who is author. Look at the text. It says, from whom every family on, in heaven and on earth is named. Now, it uses this word father, and then it uses a variation of the word father. It's translated family here. It could be translated, actually, the legitimate word. Hold on to your seat. This might scare us. It's the word patriarchy. It says, it says from whom every patriarchy in heaven and on earth is named. From every father-led household. That's the idea here. That's not trying to make a strong, hard statement about what we imagine culturally in our mind as patriarchy. Rather, this is just saying that God is the author of every family. And every family has this, this structure where the father is meant to lead. The father is meant to lead. And so, back to this text. We pray in humility and we're humble before the Father who is the authority. We're also humble before the Father who is the author. Everything we have comes from him, specifically our families. But I want us to remember that this is not just the humility where we're, we're groveling before God. Where we're like, we're on our knees and we're just, our, our face is flat to the ground. We're like, would you please maybe just, maybe, maybe listen to me a little bit. Just back up to verse 12. I want you to remember that we don't just pray in humility, we, we also pray in confidence. Verse 12, we just saw this last week, it talks about how in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, we, we pray to the Father, and, and when we pray, we have these two attitudes that we cling to. It's not one or the other. We, we pray, first of all, with the humility, God is God and we are not. But we also pray with this confidence, God cares. God invites us in. God wants us to bring our concerns. Uh, let me ask you, is one of these describe your prayer life more than the other? Do you find yourself walking through life with this humility and maybe even a false humility where you're like, God, I'm so terrible. God, how could you ever love me? And, and you kind of just are constantly humble but it's humble to a point of, of no confidence at all, and you don't expect God to answer your prayer or God to work in your life at all. Or, or maybe you pray with just, just the confidence side of things. And so you're almost like flippant in your relationship with God. You, you, you approach God without giving him respect or awe. You pray with the, this casualness, like, hey, Jesus, what's up? How's it going up there? Hey, uh, instead of coming before him with both, 
humility and confidence. This is how Paul's prayer begins. This is how our prayer begins. We pray to the Father, recognizing he is almighty. He is the authority. He is the author. But we also pray to the Father with this confidence, this boldness, this this absolute access because, well, because of this reason. For this reason. Because of everything that has been done in Christ, namely his death for our sins, his resurrection for our life, his His. His. His, everything about him, that's, that's, where we, that's how we approach the Father. And so we, it begins. You can reverently approach the Father in prayer. But then it gets to the heart of the passage. And this is where, this is where we're going to spend much of our time tonight. The heart of this passage, what we're going to see, is you can also expectantly appeal to the Father in prayer. You don't just come before him humble, where you praise him, and you adore him, and you recognize his authority and his authorship and his his awesomeness, you also come before him with an expectant appeal. Look at verses 16 through 19. Here is what Paul prays. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." What a prayer. This is what Paul prays for the Ephesians. This is what you and I, honestly, if, if you do one thing tonight, if you leave here marking this in your, in, your, in your Bible and you start praying this for yourself, that, that would be amazing. This is what we should be praying for each other. And there's a lot of lofty language in here. But within these verses, there are three specific prayer requests that the Apostle Paul makes. I want you to see if you can find them with me. Let's, let's walk through this. Let's explore these prayer requests together. Here's the first appeal. The first appeal is for what I will call for inner strength through the Spirit. We can appeal to God and we can ask God that he would give us an inner strength through his Spirit. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says, here's what he prays, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, where? In your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's what he asks. He asks for an inner strengthening. Now, now, this inner strengthening, it's, it's not something that's readily visible. I mean, we live in a world of external strengthening, right? I mean, there's a few gym boys in our church, right? And they, like, they go to the gym all the time, and they're lifting, and they're making their gains, and they're looking for this external strengthening. They want to show off their muscles, not looking at anyone in particular, trying really hard not to point anyone out, right? They are, I'll tell you what, though. These boys in our church, they're working hard. 
They're lifting hard. They're, they are externally becoming stronger and stronger and stronger, and it is visible. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an inner strengthening. You know, sometimes when I'm meeting with someone and I'm talking to them about life, I'll, I'll ask them this question. I say, how's your inner man? How, how's your inner being? How's your soul? What is the condition, not of your muscles and of your physical heart, what is the condition of the strength of your soul? Are you strong? Are you able to withstand temptation? Are you able to endure difficulty and trial? Or do you give in the moment you're tempted? And do you flee and avoid difficulty to the best of your ability. How is your inner man? He asks that the inner man, the inner being, would be strengthened. And I want you to see where this strength comes from. I want you to see the source. Look at the text. Here's the source. It says that according, here it is, to the riches of his glory. The source of our inner strengthening. Look at this. They are the riches of God's glory. Now, we've talked about the word riches before. This text, all of the first three chapters of Ephesians, one of the theme, themes is God's riches. He's got lavish grace. He has great love. He, he is abundant in this richness of his, of his glory. So we have his riches, and then we have this word glory. What is God's glory? God's glory is the sum total of his character. If you were to take God's power and God's knowledge and God's ever all-present nature, if you were to take his love and his mercy, if you were to take his wisdom and his truth, if you were to take God's justice and God's righteousness, if you were to take all of that together and you were to display it in front of everyone to see, you would behold his glory. And this is the source of our strength. Notice, this doesn't say, Paul is, isn't praying that we would be strengthened by our own character. He's not praying that we would be strengthened by our own physical ability or even our own moral fortitude. He says, I am praying that according to the riches of God's glory, he would strengthen your inner being the very core of your soul would grow strong. The source is God's glory. I love this. The conduit then, how does this happen? Here's what it says. Through his spirit. Through his spirit. Once again, this is a very Trinitarian passage, right? This is, this is according to Christ, verse 17, so Christ may dwell in your hearts, right? Right? We're being strengthened by the, the glory of the character of the Father and the conduit, the, the method of delivery is the Spirit of God that dwells in every believer. Brother or sister in Christ, this is available to you right now. We talked about last week, this is not something for super-Christians this is not something for those extra spiritual people. <laughs> Listen, you in your inner being can experience this kind of strengthening. 
And it's not a strengthening that is displayed in like weird, strange ways. Look, this is a strengthening that is applied in just the basics of life, resistance of temptation and endurance in trials and troubles. That's what we need strength for. We don't need strength so we can do backflips. We don't need strength so we can have the biggest, most profound personality so everyone likes us. No, we need strength for just these basic things that every one of us face. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't face temptation. There's not one of us in this room that from time to time does not go through trial or tribulation. We need his strength. Look at verse 17, though. Look at the result. This is, this is incredible. When we experience the inner strengthening that is, find its, its source in the character of God and it's delivered through the Spirit, verse 17, it says, the result, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here, here's the result. The result is a closer walk with the Lord. Our world, we, we, we love this idea of like everyone has the same outcome. Everyone has the same result. This world of equality and egalitarianism, right? And so we think, you know what? Uh, you should have the same access to God that I have and we should all have the exact same walk with him and everything should be just be like cookie cutter, the same. That's not always the case though. See, when, when we be, find ourselves reliant on the Lord's strength, when we find ourselves dependent on the Lord's strength in our temptation and in our trials, that's when we find just the nearness of the Lord in ways that, I'll just be honest, I don't have words to describe. Well, just over a year ago, I stood up here after uh, five or six weeks of not being able to preach. Many of you guys remember that. I had COVID really bad last year. In my, my first week back, I just shared with you about God's presence in suffering. You know, if there's ever a truth that I wish I could rearrange it, this, is, this would be it. <laughs> because God's nearness in suffering and difficulty requires a reliance and a dependence on him that I'm, if I'm just really honest, I don't have that reliance and dependence on him when life's going really well. <laughs> when everything's working for me, I think about the Lord. I, I thank him. I acknowledge him. I trust him. But when nothing's working for me, I'm desperate for him. I can't do it all. I can't do anything without him. This is, this is verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is our first appeal. It's an appeal for inner strength through the Spirit. Brother or sister, I don't want to move on too quickly here. I don't want you to miss the reality of this prayer. Would you, even right now, kind of just hold tight to your Bible and make a commitment in your heart to start praying this way for yourself? 
that the Lord, by the riches of his glory, because of his character, that he would strengthen you in your inner being. Not that you would be strong enough on your own to resist temptation. Not that you would be strong enough on your own to deal with trials. And not that trials would pass you by and you wouldn't have difficulty. But instead, that the internal being, your soul, the very depth of who you are, that you would be entirely reliant upon him as your strength. This is our first appeal. An appeal for inner strength through the Spirit. Let's, get, let's continue. Here's the second appeal. The appeal is for intimate comprehension of Christ's love. He prays for this inner strength, and then he prays that the Ephesians, and by extension that you and I, that we would have this intimate comprehension of Christ's love. Follow along with me. The end of verse 17. It says that you being rooted and grounded in love. I think this is an extension of Christ dwelling in you through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength, here it is, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. <laughs> Here's what he asks. He asks that we would comprehend the incomprehensible love of Jesus Christ. Does that seem strange to anyone else? <laughs> Let me say it again. He asks that we will know what we can't know. <laughs> this is this enigma of Christ's love. This is the love of the holy God that we don't deserve, that we did not earn, that we did nothing to gain. And yet it's freely given through Jesus and his death and resurrection. Once again, it's this, it says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, I think this is just flowing contextually right out of the previous idea. The previous idea is that we have Christ dwelling in us. In fact, verse 17 is kind of a mess, right? Because you have that halfway through and, and the, 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 the text shifts a little bit. Uh, Jaden calls this uh, hippie gangster monks, right? If you, were ever, uh, if you ever have thought about like, why do we have verses and chapters in the Bible? Paul did not write chapter 3, verse 1, and then verse 2. He didn't add these notations. These were, these were added by scribes and by translators hundreds of years later. And every time we're reading the Bible and there's a, a bad verse break or a bad paragraph break, my son's just like those hippie gangster monks. What's wrong with these people? He gets so upset, right? But this is one of those verses where you kind of can be upset. Look at verse 17. Just halfway through it, it says it shifts ideas completely. But, but, but I want you to see the connection. The connection is Christ dwelling in us. This inner strength that we just saw. And here's what, here's what he's asking. That we would comprehend the incomprehensible love of God. Do you know? Do you know the Savior's love? I mean, yeah, of course, we're at church, we're gathered together, we sing songs, we lift our hands. Okay, yeah, Jesus loves me, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. What's for dinner? Do you know the Savior's love? When I was in seminary, a few years into it, I did a three-year degree in four years. I was special like that, right? But a few years into my degree in seminary, 
uh, I had put off one of these classes because, you know, I was like, give me the Bible classes, give me the Greek classes, right? But one of the classes that required was a counseling course. I was like, oh, is there a way I can get my, get around that? <laughs> can I just do some extra language classes or something? But, but we had to take this counseling course. And I hate to say it, it was one of the best courses I ever took. Because in this course, a lot of what we did is we, I met with two other seminary students, and every week we, we just kind of processed Scripture, and we learned to ask each other questions. And in this process, uh, stinking course, right? In this process, I was forced to confront some of my core beliefs. I was doing ministry. I had a family. I was serving, I was in seminary, I was doing all these great things, I was leading people to Christ, I was working part-time at Albertsons, part-time at the church, doing all these things, and I was doing all this, and it came to a spot where I came face-to-face with the reality that I was trying to earn God's love. I didn't believe he loved me. I I believed he loved everyone else. For whatever reason, in my mind, I had this asterisk, though, of all these things that I had done when I was younger, or my upbringing, or, or the way this person treated me, or the way this person treated me, or what this person said about me, or what this person said about me. And all these things, I kept locked in, locked in a box in my heart that I did not even know existed. And I was hoping through ministry and through service, through doing the right thing and cleaning up my act, that sooner or later, God would love me. And this stupid counseling course, it wrecked me. It busted that box open, took all my dirty laundry and spread it all out in front of me and in front of the Lord. And I realized that in all of my sin and all of my selfishness and all of my mess and all of my trauma and all the things that have been said to me and in all the things that had been done to me and all these things that I thought that disqualified me from the love of God until I had earned it, I realized that regardless of all of it, God loved me with a perfect fatherly love. My life began to change dramatically. I was saved before that. I know that. But instead of doing ministry out of this anxiousness of like, I got to do this, I got to prove this, I got to be this, I started to learn how to do ministry out of freedom. Instead of trying to impress people, I just started living out of the love of God. And it changed my life through and through. And you want to know what it was that changed my life? This prayer right here. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the the width, and the length, and the height, and the depth. And to know, here it is, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Here's what he prays. You can know the love of God on paper, but he prays that you would know it beyond the paper. You can know the love of God between your ears, but he wants you to know the love of God in the very core of your soul. Do you know the Savior's love? 
Are you free from trying to please people? Are you free from trying to earn his love and his salvation? Are you free from trying to prove yourself? In fact, it's by knowing his love that you find you begin to become free from sin. Sin looks much less attractive when you know the love of the Savior. Why would you gossip? Why would you lie? Why would you be bitter? Why would you steal? Why would you pursue sexual sin? All of these things, they, they become ugly because Christ has become so beautiful. And his love has impacted you so deeply. Church, will you begin to pray for yourself like this? Would you tonight after the kids are in bed and and everything's put away, would you go close your door and bow your knees before the Father and say, Lord, let me know your love. Not let me earn your love. Not not, Not let me just understand a little bit of your love. Let me know your love that is unknowable. This is an appeal for an intimate comprehension of Christ's love. Let's look at the third request. This one's short. His third request is an appeal for the immensity of God's presence. Uh, An appeal for the immensity of God's presence. He begins by appealing for this inner strength through the Spirit, and then he appeals for an intimate comprehension of Christ's love, and then finally an appeal for the immensity of God's presence. Again, we see Son, Spirit, and Father in these three appeals. But in this third appeal, here's what he says. He says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. You hear the language, filled, fullness. There's a lot of repetition here. What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? Does it mean like you can go out to Lake Sacagawea and be like, I'm filled with all the fullness of God. I'm going to walk on water, right? Does it mean that like you can, you know, become a miracle worker and just start doing whatever you want or saying whatever you want? What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? I, 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 the bottom line, this is, a, this is a life that is saturated top to bottom through and through with an awareness of God and his presence in your life. To be filled with all the fullness of God means that, that God's love is always on your mind. It means in those moments when you start to have uh, doubts uh, about yourself and your worth, or in those moments when you're being tempted to sin, in those moments, if you're filled with all the fullness of God, your mind goes to the reality that you're loved. Regardless of what someone else says. Regardless of how strong the temptation is. And and because you're loved, this fullness changes the way you think. Changes the way you act. To be filled with the the fullness of God means that Christ's character is always being formed in you. Not only are you aware of God and his presence, but every day you're becoming more and more like Christ. Every day you're, you're more quickly living a life of holiness and you're slower to live a life of sin. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you're never going to sin. Because you're filled with the fullness of God, the character of God is taking over your character. I think about the fruit of the Spirit. 
You're growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These characteristics are part of your life, not because you're trying so hard, but because you're aware of God's presence in your life. You're full of the fullness of God. This means that the Spirit is leading and guiding you always. Those moments when you have an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, (laughs) when you're filled with the fullness of God, those moments, you see those moments just as clear as day. This, This week we... I took our car down to Vancouver to get some work done on it. And the, the place that was doing the work, they had a, like an arrangement with Lyft. And so they were taking me from the, the car dealership to the mall, the Chick-fil-A, honestly, right? And, uh, and then and they would take me, take me back, right? And so it was, you know, it was a really rough day. I, I had to have Chick-fil-A for breakfast, and then it took too long, so I had to have Chick-fil-A for lunch. Really rough, right? Just suffering, right? But, uh, and the, Listen, nothing special here about me, but both Lyft drivers, we ended up talking about the Lord. I didn't have to do anything. I'm just aware of the Lord working, looking for where the conversation might lead to spiritual things. And it's like the Lord's like, all right, Mike, here's a door, walk through it. And I kind of like stumble my way through it, right? Like, (laughs) okay. This is a life that's filled with the fullness of God. Not to say it put me on a pedestal. Like There are days where I miss it all the way, right? But this is true for you as well. When you have an all-encompassing vision of God's presence, when you know that he's always with you, when you know that he always loves you, when he, you know that he's always shaping and transforming your character, and you know that he's always working, this is a life that is marked that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you pray this way, church? Paul here is praying with an expectation that the Ephesian believers will experience these three three appeals being answered. Do you have this confident expectation? When you pray, do you pray this way for yourself and for others, asking, trusting the Lord will actually do this? Do you appeal for inner strength through the Spirit? Do you appeal for an intimate comprehension of Christ's love? And do you appeal for the immensity of God's presence in your life? These three things, they're right here waiting for you. And they're not waiting for you if you're a super special Christian or if you didn't swear today, right? They're not here waiting for you if you just do your best all the time. They're here waiting for you by faith, by trusting in who Christ is, by trusting in the work he's done, by trusting in the character of your heavenly Father that we bow our knees before. Well, when we we ask God for these things expectantly, Paul ends his prayer. There's one final aspect. And the result is that you can hopefully ascribe glory to the Father in prayer. When you pray for these things, when you pray for inner strength, and when you pray for an intimate knowledge of his love, and when you pray for this immensity of God's presence, you don't pray for these things so you're like, so I can be glorified so that everyone can look at me and say, like, look how awesome I am. Look at where the text lands, verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him, now to God, who is able, check this out, to do 
far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is, this is a, a hopeful recognition of God's glory, but, but I want you to see some foundations of why this hope is so strong. First of all, we hope in a God who is more powerful than we are. I mean, this just text makes it so clear. We hope in a God who is more powerful than we are. Verse 20, it says, Now to him, look at this, who is able. He has the capability. He is able. It says, who is able to do more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. Here's what he says. According to the power at work within us. If If you've trusted in Jesus and his death and resurrection, his power is at work within you. He is able to answer these prayer requests. He is able to meet you in your need. He is able to see you through in the moment of temptation. He is able to help you forgive that person who's hurt you. He he is able to see you through the trial and the tribulation and the pain. He is more powerful than you and I. This is the source of our strength, not ourselves, but him. Secondly, the second aspect of God We hope not only in a God who is more powerful, but secondly, we hope in a God who is more creative than we are. I love the way Paul prays here. He says, now to him who is able to do, here it is, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I can be a creative guy once in a while. Every once in a while, I come up with a pretty creative idea. Most of the time, my creativity is marginal, right? Like, you guys see the words I use in these notes to make it easy to remember, right? Like, oh, that was a stretch, Mike, right? But God, he's able to do more than we ask. Oh, that's cool. Look, more than we ask or think. You might be praying, you might say, God, here's a solution I'd like you to deliver in my life in this situation. And you might even be praying saying, I think this is according to your word. I think this is according to your character. It's not even like a selfish prayer. It's like, God, I think this is a good prayer. Guess what? He zooms out way further than you're able to. He sees the beginning from the end, and he is able to do more than you and I could even imagine. I was meeting with a friend recently, sharing about some ministry challenges. Every once in a while, someone just says the right thing at the right time. Here's what he says. Mike, sometimes you just got to wait and watch what God does. Sometimes you just got to wait and watch what God does. And, And then sit back and be amazed at what he does. Sit back and be astounded by his creativity and his power. Last aspect, though. We hope in a God who is more powerful than we are, who is more creative than we are, and finally, we hope in God who is glorified through us. It says, to him be glory in the church, that's us, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory. Not to Mike, not to you, not to Valley. To God be the glory forever. 
This is why our big idea tonight is bowing before the Father follows beholding God's work. Now, I just, I'm going to read this entire text as a prayer over us to conclude. I'm going to ask you to maybe just take a second and and set your your things down, set them aside. Take a moment and go before the Lord in a posture of humility. I'm not going to make you do it, but if you have space and you want to, maybe even just get on your knees before the Lord right now. As I read these words for you, whatever posture you're willing to do before the Father, take this moment. And I'm simply just going to read this text as a prayer that these things that Paul prayed for the Ephesians, these things would be true of you. They'd be true of me. They'd be true of our families. They'd be true of of our church. That we would bow before the Father as we recognize and behold his work. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.